there's something I wanted to ask you. Why can't we have colorful windmills? Somebody explained to me now, but I've forgotten. Okay. But let's go with that they're supposed to be blank canvases for graffiti artists. <laughs> they come along and impart their own sort of artistic <laughs> endeavor on it. I'm sure there's a very engineering science-based reason, but that's what I like to think, that they're offering a blank canvas for, for people. For art. For art, yeah. for street art. Yeah. That's a great reason. This is Acragorama, the podcast on Irish geoscience. Season 1, episode 2. With Mark Colin. Mark is a postdoctoral research fellow in Acrag. Well, welcome to our podcast, Mark. Um, you're a postdoctoral researcher here. Would you like to say what you do? Sure. So my research fundam- at a fundamental level is looking at seabed conditions for offshore wind development, uh, particularly in the Irish Sea, so to build offshore wind turbines. Right. And do we know a lot about the seabed around Ireland or is there lots left to find out? We know much more than most other countries know about their seabed, to be honest. Um, the National Programme for Mapping the Irish Seabed, Infamar, which is run by the Geological Survey and the Marine Institute, has done an absolutely uh, tremendous job in mapping the seabed and providing all of the data they've gathered uh, for the public good. So in, in many ways, we are, we're very lucky to have that data. And as a result, we know a considerable amount about our seabed but by the same token um, Ireland has an absolutely huge um, area offshore it's it's nearly 10 times our our land mass and there's still quite a lot of areas where we don't um, understand fully so there's still a lot of uh, research to be done out there and a lot of exploration to be had. And I suppose your postdoc is kind of an interfacing with policy or it's connected to policy Mm. so is that an aspect you look at as well? Yes, I, I have more recently I've been involved in um, a couple of initiatives within ICRAG, which is looking at um, policy and helping to inform future policy, particularly around granting of, of rights or, or seabed rights for, for development um, and also uh, de-risking um, uh, mechanisms for offshore wind. So it's, it's an area that I, I have a bit of experience in previously. Um, before I took up this role, I worked with a, a renewable energy developer um, and in that role I was project manager for an offshore for de- a development offshore wind project as a result you need to be quite cognizant of what policy dictates because it determines a lot of um, aspects of your project what you can and cannot do so uh, as a result I, I'm quite aware of policy and it's an area where I feel data and information can be provided to policymakers to help them better inform policy decisions and policy frameworks within Ireland. So for sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me, because I'm, I'm not sure I know, I'm still sort of new to Ireland. <laughs> Is there already offshore windmills in Ireland? There's one project uh, developed and that is the Arclo Bank project, which okay. was built in 2004. So that comprises seven turbines right. off the east coast of Ireland. And that was built in 2004. So that's Ireland's first and only offshore wind project. At the time, it was the largest commercial project in the world. Mm. It was the first project to use turbines that were, were rated over three megawatts. So at the time, Ireland was really avant-garde in its its development and was to the fore of offshore wind. 
Um, since then, however, we've we've trailed behind primarily because the government decided that a lot of our renewable energy targets and climate change targets would be met using onshore wind and that the cost of offshore wind was too prohibitive. Okay, but do you think after your research during your postdoc, there's a chance that they resume um, new projects and they develop uh, more? Oh, it's it's happening as we speak, Ben. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it's 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 been so yeah. Offshore wind has been on the back burner for a long time. Um, however, in recent years, it's been quite become quite apparent that Ireland is going to fail to meet a number of its its renewable targets in the future. There's going to be a huge increase in demand and offshore wind effectively is the only technology that is cost effective and scalable enough to meet this kind of demand in the short to medium term. So in recent uh, years, the government has been quite progressive in terms of putting in place uh, policy frameworks to support offshore wind. Basically, if you develop the project, there was no mechanism for to get paid for the electricity that you generated. Mm. But that's that's all to change now. How much electricity do you generate with one windmill? Oh, oh, that's uh, it depends, Ben. That's okay. uh, that's a. Uh, that's an interesting question. Enlighten me. In, <laughs> prepare to be enlightened. So <laughs> one megawatt is okay. roughly enough to power about 7,000 domestic households. That's a lot. Um, and the current um, wind turbine size is roughly in the six to seven megawatt range. Wow. Okay. So you don't need that many of them to power like a village, for example. There's much more demand on the system other than domestic use. There's also industrial use. Um, and as well, again, as, as we're talking about, this level of industrial demand is going to increase. Ireland is looking to become a real hub for data centers. So for, for data mm -hmm. storage and these types of facilities use a huge amount of electricity. Um, similarly as well, there's a lot of talk of decarbonization of transport. So looking at introducing electric vehicles. So in order to charge these, you'll need you'll need electricity. And in order to meet that demand, um, bigger turbines, more such projects are, are really needed. So in Ireland now, there's a lot of talk of climate change. Mm. And what's your personal opinion about the situation and how we can move forwards in the energy transition? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge question because it's, it's probably one of the one of the main areas where that has contributed hugely to, to climate change, both through fossil fuel power generation plants um, and through through transport. Um, and it, it, it's huge areas whereby renewable energy can play a big part in decarbonization of those sectors. Principally, the issues in the past have been around the intermittency of renewable energy. Basically, when the wind is blowing, when the sun is shining, electricity has been generated, but there's no demand for it, maybe because the the wind is blowing at night or, or, or similarly. Um, the, the storage of energy for later uses has, has been one of the restricting factors of renewable energy. However, these issues are, are being overcome um, of late through uh, battery storage, lithium battery, through compressed air energy storage, through, through multiple of different mediums which allow us to store renewable 
electricity which can be used at a future date. Yeah, you've been working on this compressed air energy storage. Is it's that a it? project I worked on previously. So the company I, I used to work with before I, I started this postdoc had a project in the north of Ireland, which looked at solution mining of caverns in Permian salt in Island McGee um, and then using those caverns to store compressed air. So effectively, where you had excess electricity on the grid from renewable sources. So when the wind was blowing and you were generating electricity, but you had no demand, that electricity is cheap. You can buy that electricity. You can use it to power a compressor, which compresses air underground that you can store. Then when there is a peak demand, so if when everybody comes home in the evening after work and switches on the kettle for their cup of tea, you get a huge spike in demand. And to help meet that demand, you can then release the compressed air that you've stored up at, a, at, a, at another time, mix it with a small bit of gas and put it through a traditional turbine, uh, a gas turbine and generate electricity that way. What? I've never heard about this. This is amazing. So you're saying that you can compress the air when you don't need the energy. And then when you need the energy, the compressed air will be used to to make the turbines go. Not the wind turbines. No, no, this no, is a no, separate no, turbine. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A separate but turbine yeah, underground. Yeah, or, or just at the surface. Yeah, but it's a, it's a kind of a traditional gas power turbine effectively that's modified. But yeah, you can do that. It has been done. Um, it's the technology has been deployed twice in the world. So one is in Germany in Huntdorf and another one is Alabama in the US. But both of those are linked either to fossil or their backup mm -hmm. generators effectively for fossil fuel or nuclear plants. So the project we were looking at would have been the first that was renewables um, focused. Effectively. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's really interesting. So I'm really curious about sort of your career and you did your mm. PhD. What was that on? Uh, let's go back. So actually, <laughs> yeah, when, back in time. Yeah. Um, did you always want to be a scientist? Oh, absolutely. Um, I suppose from when I was very young, very interested in outdoors and science in general. And I suppose when I was in secondary school, then during transition year, I was given a book by a, a teacher of mine that was Bill Bryson's a, a short history of nearly everything. And in that, there was a lot of talk on uh, geology. He covered a lot of aspects of geology and how the science evolved over time and interplays with other different sciences uh, like biology and chemistry and so forth. And it kind of piqued an interest in me because I'd never considered geology before as a sort of a scientific path that I could go down. So following on from that, then there was an open day at UCC. John Gamble gave a talk to a room probably consisting of about five people, including myself. <laughs> but I remember John speaking quite passionately about meteorites, dinosaurs um, and all sorts of volcanoes, earthquakes, all sorts of natural phenomenon that they, they studied as part of this course. So I think from there on, I was I was very much sold on the idea of a, a geology path. So I did that for my undergrad um, following that then at the time when I finished, there was a, a big sort of exodus of, of geoscientists from Ireland to Australia and really? Canada to work in the in the mining industries yeah. out there. But I suppose I was never much interested in the in the in the mining and, and mineral side of it. Um, I became very interested in renewable energy and in marine geology in particular um, during my undergrad. 
So I, I looked at where I could focus that and, and I was lucky enough to spend some time on a survey with uh, Andy Wheeler at UCC and that definitely piqued my interest in marine geology. So I pursued a PhD with Andy um, in Cork looking at offshore seabed stratigraphy, um, uh, quaternary stratigraphy in the Irish Sea and, the, and in the German North Sea. So I spent a year in, in Germany um, studying at the, at the Marm Centre at the University of, of Bremen. And then after that, when I completed my PhD, the, I gave a presentation to the, to, the, to the developer, to the company. They were, they were suitably impressed, I suppose, and they offered me a job as a project manager on their, on their offshore wind development project, seeing as I knew the most about the site. <laughs> yeah. What's it like being back in academia? What do you like about it or, or not? <laughs> it's, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy being back in, in research, um, basically because the freedom, I suppose, that mm. it affords you. Yeah, yeah, um, it's uh, it's a it's great to be able to come to work every day and do things that you're <laughs> fundamentally <laughs> that you're fundamentally interested in for one um, and not to be particularly constrained by does this make money? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a question that comes to mind is then the role of communities and sort of people in Ireland. Do they what do you think? Is there a perception of renewables? I mean, it's a difficult mixed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very mixed um, within Ireland. I'm speaking anecdotally here as well, of course. Um, but traditionally, when offshore, when onshore wind first started in Ireland, the areas that were identified were traditionally quite rural, um, um, and and maybe would have experienced wouldn't have experienced a lot of the the benefits of of the economic boom. So we're talking areas maybe in the west of Ireland. So when onshore wind first started in those areas, it was it was a great means of local jobs through the construction and development of these projects um, also people who own land were able to sell land to developers and make money that way however as as projects started moving into areas that are maybe closer to urban developments there's been a, a sort of a, a much higher level of resistance to these kind of projects so as you're they're moving towards potentially more valuable land or, or areas where people are living um, and there is a there's often a, a degree of miscommunication on what projects mean and the impacts of wind turbines on certain areas. In terms of, of offshore development, the reaction to current projects going ahead is generally positive. So it's a mixed reaction. Uh, I have a question about your presentations recently. I've seen a slide with an artistic <laughs> impression or it was a famous painting <laughs> and I'd like to know more about that. <laughs> that was that was Caspar David Friedrich's Wanderer Above the Clouds. So it's a Caspar uh, uh, David Friedrich is a is a German romantic painter that I came across uh, when I lived in in Germany. So there was uh, an exhibition of his in the local gallery in Bremen, which I went along to. And I saw this image of a person, of a, of a guy standing overlooking this tremendous vista of fog and landscape and I just found it um, beautiful in terms of nature and man's place in nature and how we're part of it but also how overwhelming it is so I, I liked it so much I, I use it quite frequently <laughs> I've done a doctored version where I include myself looking at a sea of offshore wind turbines yeah. <laughs> so I suppose it's just to I suppose try and communicate how 
beautiful offshore turbines can be and how they can fit in with the landscape. Um, it's it's part of an anthropogenic landscape, I suppose, if I was to put an artistic term on it. So, yeah. Nice. So <laughs> are you into more art or is it just I this, do like this art, one? yeah. Um, that and, and Edvard Munch, the, the guy that did the scream. A lot of his stuff is very sad. That's yeah. why I like it. Do you like sadness, Mark? I am. Uh, I, I do enjoy a good bit of sadness. And also, there's some links to science, aren't they, in, in Munch? Oh, yeah, the, the background, the the sky. So it's, yeah, yeah. so they, they, it's a very vivid red sky. And the time that he painted it, when they looked at it, they were trying to figure out why is it this deep red? But it was to do with a volcanic eruption around then. I can't remember exactly. But it's sort of like the work of Turner. Yes, Turner. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so it's very similar to Turner's work. Yeah. Oh, they're beautiful skies. Yeah. But yeah, there was some link to the, the atmosphere as well, and they studied it in a scientific paper. There. That's right. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, the clouds, you know, their mm. special yeah, effects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So links to science and art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I know, but it's an interesting one because, like, when we generate figures, it's often quite prosaic and matter of fact, but. If you're trying to communicate a lot of these things to non-technical people, art is a great medium through which to to try and um, to try and to do that. So not just painting, but I know I cry do the poetry trip down yeah. at the Fail in the Beautina. I'm a big poetry fan as yeah. well, especially Heaney. Yeah, um, yeah. So so yeah, so no, it, the arts and science. There's a there's a natural marriage there for communicating, definitely. You also like reading, I hear. I love so reading. What are you yeah. reading at the moment? Oh, uh, I'm in a book club. Uh, we're called Ooh. the Last Tuesday of the Month Book Club because we meet on the last Tuesday. <laughs> so at the moment we're we're because we're coming into the summer period, uh, we picked a rather light-hearted one. So High Fidelity is is what we're reading at the moment. Are you going on any holidays? I am going to Sicily next week. Oh. Uh, so we have we have friends who are getting married on the island of Sicily and part of that we've booked a guided hike by a local geologist of Ooh. Mount Enta, Etna. Wow. So I am I'm extremely excited by the prospect of that. Partly because as well he does wine tours of the local vineyards mm. as part of this. We have questions from Twitter. Oh fantastic. Teresa wants to know what does iCrag do? Teresa should know because she spent <laughs> two years there, was it? And but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Just about I cried. So, but Teresa, <laughs> if you didn't notice what the people around you were doing on a daily basis, uh, effectively, ICRAG is a geoscience research institute that looks at a variety of challenges facing society um, and performs research in those areas to help de-risk and also drive economic growth and protecting the environment in a number of spheres, I would say. Yeah, that's a very good answer. She Thank also you. wants to know, why is it important and why do we need it as an Irish context? That's a very, that's a very good question. It, it's very important because of a number of reasons. Population in Ireland is growing. Um, Urbanisation is growing. Um, our demand for materials, our demand for resources as a result is increasing. So ICRAG performs a very fundamental role in identifying resources and managing our interaction with the environment from a resource perspective, pressure on resources and, and mitigating unnecessary exploitation of those resources like groundwater and, and so forth. So it's very important as Ireland as a country develops industrially, 
that we take care to safeguard our environment and sustainably utilize our our resources for for economic development effectively. Rafael wants to know how do we make sure that the windmills offshore don't disturb the wildlife like the the mammals and all that. Very good question. I suppose there is a very stringent um, environmental impact assessment that goes alongside any development. So effectively, you're talking about anywhere between two and five years of monitoring of a site before construction is even considered. So you're looking at mammal patterns in the area. So migration of dolphins, migration of whales, uh, bird migratory studies. So there's there's a large baseline is developed, which is then assessed at a at a I suppose at a government level almost, I suppose, because it, it's it's done by on board Planola. Um, so it, it's very stringent in that regard and adheres to, to best practice at a European level. So there is a very, very stringent process there for looking at environmental impacts of these turbines. Great. So at what international events will we uh, be able to find you? Um, so I was in Russia recently, which was my big furrow in conferences uh, this year, which was tremendous. So I went to Geohab, which is a seabed mapping conference. So it's about using mapped data from the seabed for multiple end users like aggregates, offshore renewable energy, habitat mapping. Great experience. So Great place for art. Beautiful place for art. It was tremendous that I, I got an opportunity to explore the city, I suppose, uh, and just the architecture, the history, the people in it very different to Dublin, of course. And it was just a great experience to, to go there and, and not only meet the researchers there, but like I said, go to the Winter Palace. And it's just really bizarre when you consider how much revolution and war the the city's experienced that it still holds this uh, palatial grandeur and it's a real milieu of cultures I suppose in terms of you're walking down one area and it's a it's a very very baroque style architecture another area then it's it's almost very reminiscent of Venice or Paris and then you've got your typical Soviet style architecture as well so definitely interesting I suppose the highlight for me was uh, the Dostoevsky themed restaurant that I went to was definitely very very cool I really enjoyed that place and it was called the idiot as well so (laughs) it's quite endearing (laughs) so will you be going to any more places conferences in the coming months I will be so one of the big conferences that is happening is actually happening here in Dublin which is very convenient so the INQA Congress which is the largest quaternary science conference in the world will be coming here so roughly two to three thousand researchers will descend on Dublin for roughly a week and it promises to be a, a rich tapestry of ideas and discussions around all things quaternary from human migration through to geography through to geology through to botany so it's a it's a real real mixed bag of 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 research so I'm, i'm very excited to be both presenting at that um and also chairing a session at that and then later on in the year i hope to go to copenhagen to a sort of a technical offshore renewable energy conference which is looking at various technological advances in um, offshore wind, offshore wave and tidal. So that's happening in Copenhagen in November, I think. So I'll be I'll be at that as well. Nice. So they're my they're my two big conferences for the rest of the year now. 
Interesting. So if you're listening and you want to uh, meet up with Mark, Copenhagen yeah. and Dublin. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay, so coming to the end now, so I'm just going to shoot out some rapid questions. So if there was one thing, one bit of misinformation you see around renewables that you would like to correct, what would it be? I suppose one of the, particularly for offshore, the one thing that's constantly said is they're ugly. You know, they're they're a blight on the landscape. Um, but for the most part, the assessments that go into citing offshore wind farms are cognizant of this. So they do visual impact studies whereby they look at how they can orientate the turbines in rows so that if you look from an offshore perspective, there you, you only you see a limited amount of them if you see them at all. And often they're at distances whereby, you know, the natural horizon kind of masks a lot of it so i suppose yeah the visual impact is one of the things that is often thrown against them that i'd, I'd like to i suppose challenge people on um if, if anything yeah uh favorite book oh dear oh wow um the brothers Kar- karamazov by dostoevsky um because it's just very it's very long so it'll take up a lot of my time um but also it's it's multiple stories in one and every time i go back to it i always find something um something new about it um that or the master and margarita by mikhail bulgakov just because it's so funny and entertaining oh. yeah uh where can we find you on social media oh uh yeah <laughs> i'm on twitter i i recently set up a twitter account this year so i'm still i'm still experimenting with it but you can find me on twitter at dr marky c so it's dr marky and then c as in c for cat so you can find me there um on twitter yeah okay well thank you no thank you very much for having me it's been <laughs> it's been interesting it's been a pleasure so yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll have you on again. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Bye, Mark. Bye, Ben.